That's the kind of God we serve. Good evening, church. For those of you who don't know me, anybody who's new here, my name is Mark Matthews, and I'm filling in for Zeke tonight. As some of you may know, Zeke's brother-in-law passed away over the weekend, and uh, it was expected, but still, it uh, doesn't make it any easier. And uh, Zeke and Blanca are back in Texas uh, for the services and ministering to the family back there, so we'll, uh, we'll keep them in prayer when we uh, open in prayer in just a few, a few moments. Um, so I'll be here tonight giving out the word, and uh, this Sunday, um, Gary Apor will be here giving out the word, and don't want to miss that. Gary's a great and excellent teacher, and I know he's just going to bring forth a marvelous message. No pressure, Gary. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for tonight, and we just want to come before you, Lord, and just uh, first we want to hold uh, Zeke and Blanca up to you, Lord, as they're back in Texas. Uh, with the death of his brother-in-law, Lord, we just pray for the family back there. We pray that you will use Zeke and Blanca to just uh, minister to the family, Lord, and uh, just to comfort them, Father. And Lord, if there's any uh, any work for the kingdom that they need to do while they're back there, Lord, we just pray you'd open the way for that. But we just want to thank you, Lord, for tonight. We thank you for letting us come here to worship you and praise and worship and thanksgiving and prayer. And Father, now as we begin uh, to get ready to worship you and the study of your word, I just pray you'd be with each one of us here, open our ears and our hearts to receive the message you have for us. I pray for myself that your spirit would just guide my mouth and my lips and my words, Lord, so that your truth would come forward. And Father, we just pray for your spirit to lead us now into the study of your word. We love you, we praise you, we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you guys remember last time I taught, and if you can remember last time I taught, that's pretty good because I'm old and I'm lucky I can remember yesterday, so I can't remember the last time I taught, but it was back in December. I taught on the uh, on the book of Ruth. We started the book of Ruth. We did chapter one of the book of Ruth. Tonight we're going to go ahead and we're going to uh, go into chapter two and study that tonight. But before we begin our study in chapter two, Let's just do a little recap of the introduction in, uh, in chapter one that we studied last week, uh, last time. The book of Ruth serves as a, it, it is a, am I doing okay in the sound? Am I okay? Uh, the book of Ruth serves as a prophetic type or picture of the Lord's relationship with his church. It is also one of two books in, of the Bible named after women, the other one, of course, being the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges in Israel. Uh, that lasted from 1380 B.C. with the death of Joshua until uh, 1050 B.C. when Saul became king, the first king of Israel. It was a time of extreme spiritual and moral decay in Israel. There were some 13 judges over Israel. They were sort of quasi-leaders of Israel they would judge in the matters of the people. Some of them, quite a few of them, were leaders in, in times of war. Although they were leaders in the sense they were never fully uh, empowered by the people as true rulers. They were interim leaders during an interim period between Joshua and the establishing of a monarchy, a monarchy at which time Saul became the first king. So the book of Judges covers a period of time between the death of Joshua and the coming in of Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel. Um, now it was here that the, uh, the form of government in Israel changed from a theocracy, which is God ruling, uh, to a monarchy with a man as ruler. Now the theocracy was never successful. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a successful period in Israel simply because the people would not submit to the rule of God. And uh, that's a little lesson for our lives, too. Uh, are we submitting to the rule of God in our life? We need to look at that from time to time. Before we get to Ruth, there are two sets of verses I want to take us to in the book of Judges. Uh, first, let's uh, turn to, and read Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. And I, I emphasize this last time I taught, and I'm emphasizing it again tonight because this describes a period in Israel that is almost a mirror image of, of where we are today in our country. 
Judges 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of, uh, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Eris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. That's verse 9. I believe that verse 10 is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. And it really captures Israel's situation at this time. I think it captures our, our nation's situation tonight. Said when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. As a result of verse 10, that whole period can be summed up best in the very last verse of the book of Judges. That's Judges chapter 21, verse 25. That says this. It says, "In those days, there was no king in Israel." Everyone did was right, what was right in their own eyes. People were just doing whatever it was they wanted to do. That almost sounds like something that could be said about America today, doesn't it? At least about our leaders. Those in positions of leadership seem to have forgotten the blessings that God has bestowed on our nation. Even the miracle of it becoming a nation at all. When you think back to the Revolutionary War. You have to remember that just a ragtag bunch of farmers and, and shopkeepers defeated the, the best trained, best equipped army in the world at that time. And if that wasn't the hand of God, I don't know what wasn't. Uh, when instructing Samuel to anoint a king over Israel, God told Samuel that it was he, God, not Samuel, who was being rejected by the people. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, after the elders of Israel had petitioned Samuel to appoint a king over them, God said this to Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. God said they want a king, give them a king. So the people rejected God as ruler over them, and God instructed Samuel not to take it personally, because again, it was God that they were rejecting and not Samuel. So, it's during this dark time in Israel, this time of religious apostasy, moral corruption, and political anarchy that the book of Ruth takes place. In chapter 1, we saw that uh, there was a famine in Israel at this time, and that in an attempt to escape the effects of the famine, an Israelite named Elimelech took his wife and his sons and went to live in the land of Moab which apparently had itself avoided the famine. Elimelech's wife's name was Naomi, and his sons were named, well, sickly and puny, actually, is, is what, the, what it translates to from the Hebrew. The, the real names were Malon and Chilion, but sickly and puny uh, was what the names meant. And it turns out later in the story that they must have actually been that way because they both died at a very young age, leaving young wives behind them. In verse 4, chapter 1, we were told that Elimelech died, Naomi's husband. After his death, his sons, now grown, took wives to themselves. And with their wives and Naomi, they continued to live in Moab for ten more years. Then verse 5 of chapter 1 told us this. It says, Then both Malan and Chilion also died. So the women survived, her two sons and her husband. So Naomi was uh, the only one left of them originally came over from Israel. Now, it wasn't bad enough that Naomi had lost her sons. The situation was made even worse by the fact that her husband was dead. Now, that left her and her two daughter-in-laws with no means of support. And in the culture of that time, that was catastrophic, especially for a woman. Usually, when left with no males to support her, the only two options left to a woman was to either beg 
or become a prostitute. So that was the future confronting Naomi and her daughter-in-laws. They could either beg or become prostitutes. Also about this time, Naomi hears uh, that the famine in Israel has ended. So she decides to return to Israel. Now as they're preparing to start the journey back to Israel, Naomi realizing that her daughter-in-law's Orpah, and I may end up calling her uh, Oprah, so forgive me if I do, Orpah and Ruth, both being Gentile Moabites, had very limited potentials for finding Jewish husbands in Israel. So she encourages them to return to their own people to find husbands. In the end, uh, Orpah does just that, but Ruth insists on uh, accompanying Naomi back to Israel. And in doing so, she entreats Naomi with what some call one of the greatest literary passages, not only in scripture, but in literature. (coughs) Excuse me. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say this. It said, but Ruth said, I'm sure you guys have all heard this before. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What a beautiful passage of scripture. So regardless of Naomi's encouragement uh, (coughs) for her to return home, Ruth accompanies Naomi to Israel. We ended with the two women returning to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's where chapter 1 ended. Tonight we'll start with chapter 2. And we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 3 of Ruth chapter 2. It says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family Elimelech. So in verse 1, we're introduced to Boaz, who's... uh, Name means fleetness. He is a rich man as well as being a relative, a kinsman of sorts to Naomi's husband, although we don't know exactly what the relationship was. This will figure prominently in chapter 3 when we look at the subject of the Liberite marriage. In verse 2, we see that since Boaz is found to be a relative of Naomi through her husband, Ruth asked Naomi's permission to go and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor, hoping to find favor in his sight. The phrase here, find favor, is actually the Hebrew word can, which means grace. So this idea of seeking grace here is true to the typology of the book of, uh, of, the book of Ruth. Uh, and let's, let's go over that typology real quick. The, picture, the, the book of Ruth is a picture of Christ and his church. Every name in there is, is significant. Ruth, uh, Naomi represents Israel. Ruth represents the church. Boaz represents Christ. Uh, we'll come shortly to an unnamed servant who represents the Holy Spirit. And then even further, we'll come to another nearer kinsman and we'll identify him then. But that's what the book of Ruth is about. So... <clears throat> Here we find a Gentile woman who is symbolic of the church seeking grace from a rich ruler in Israel who is symbolic of Christ. God's word is just beautiful the way he presents it to us. And of course, Naomi lets her go and glean in the fields. Remember, these women came back to Israel with no money and no means of support. So being able to glean in in these fields uh, literally meant the difference between life or death by starvation. That was a really harsh world back then. There were no sa- social safety nets back then. People pretty much were left to fend on their own. 
Uh, one more thing here, and this is kind of a technical point. If you are reading in the King James translation or, or a couple other ones, uh, your Bible must say, may say that uh, Ruth was gleaning ears of corn. That is uh, not corn in the sense that we, we think about it. We know that because the vegetable that we know as corn was not introduced to uh, the Middle East by Americans until many centuries later. Some critics point to this as being an error, but it's not really. Just be aware that the word interpreted as ear here is the Hebrew word uh, shiboli, and it means an ear in the sense of being a, a, uh, a head or a cluster of grain. So it's not really corn they're talking about. And again, remember, this is at the time of the barley harvest. So no error. Uh, so that should clear that up anyway. So what is this gleaning thing all about? She's going to go and glean in the fields. Now the fields were set out, if, if, if you look at, at, the, at the chairs there as being the fields, everybody's fields were together uh, in one great field, and then they were divided by family. So she's going to the fields, and it's harvest time. So she's going to the fields, and hopefully to, uh, she's hoping that when she gets to uh, um, Boaz's field that he'll find favor with. So what's gleaning all about? The Hebrew word is lakat, and it's used here for glean. It means to pick up or gather or to collect. So here we find that Ruth wanted to go to uh, the fields and gather up some barley for them to eat. Uh, can she do that? Yes, according to Mosaic law, she could do that. Let's look at the law of gleaning. If you would, turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19.9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. This law is reiterated once again. This time it's regarding the grape harvest. It says there in Deuteronomy 24, 21, it says, When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that, there were a, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command you to do this thing. So in uh, Leviticus, he talks about uh, the poor and the stranger. In Deuteronomy, he talks about the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And then he also reminds Israel that they were poor and destitute and slaves at one time in Egypt. So they should be perfectly willing to help others. So basically what God is telling the Israelites is that when harvesting their fields, the harvesters could make one pass and one pass only through the field. The rest, anything that, that was left on the trees, anything that fell off, anything that was on the ground was to be left for widows or to pour to gather or to glean. And this was a command of God. This was in the Mosaic Law. That was to, uh, to take care of the in, uh, indigent. But it's not just the indigent poor that ought to be provided for. We are to provide for all who need provision, especially for our own. And here we can apply 1 Timothy 5.8. If you want to turn there, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever or an infidel is what it says in the King James. So brothers and sisters in Christ are certainly those of our own household, which is the household of God. And we know that from Ephesians 2.19. It says in Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, we, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we belong to one household, and that is the household of God. How we care for the poor and those in need, especially those of the body, is extremely important to the Lord. 
James tells us in James 1, chapter 1, verse 27. He tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, to visit them in their troubles, to visit them in their poverty and make sure that they're taken care of. And again, James tells us in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, James said, show me your, 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 your works by your faith. He said, I'll show you my faith through my works. Faith, uh, faith is faith and works is works. And, and if faith saves us, works do not save us. But works are the evidence of the faith that does save us. The way we treat our brothers and sisters in need is an indication of, of what? Well, we can turn to John 13, 34 and 35 to see that. It's our love for each other. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also have love one for another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We have to love each other, guys. It's, it's not an optional thing. This is a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give you. That's a commandment right from the lips of God. We are to love each other. We are to love the brothers and the sisters in Christ. And even though this is something God uh, not only expects of us, it's actually something God demands of us. Even though this is something God demands of us, he will still bless us for doing it. Psalm 41, 1 through 3 tells us this. It says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him uh, on his sick bed. So if we take care of the poor, God surely will take care of us. But also note one thing here. Note that the poor and widows had to go and glean for themselves. There were no government handouts back then. They were expected to go put forth the effort to glean for themselves. How does this differ sometimes from our welfare system today? Um, They had to work for it. It wasn't just handed to them. Actually doing the physical labor of gleaning enabled them to keep their dignity by working for what they received. And governments could take a real lesson from that today. Overall, assistance programs in place today work in such a way as to rob people of their dignity and their desire to be self-efficient. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Most people still truly do want to work for what they receive. This, of course, only applied to those who could do it for themselves. This didn't apply to the blind, the lame, the aged, the disabled, small children, you know, if, if a person could not do it, then it was their family's job to go out and make sure that it got done for them. Here the law of gleaning was working not only to provide for those in need, but also as a guide to righteous living. It was a check on being greedy. Tithing today performs that same function. You know, God doesn't ask for our money because he needs us to give it to him. He asks for our money because we need to give it to him. We need to be willing to give it to him. We need not to hold on to it so tight-fistedly that we refuse to give where it's needed. And that is a check on us. That's a check on us to make sure that we don't get caught up in the spirit of greed. In verse 3, it says that uh, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. 
it is obvious that this thing that uh, just happened was uh, in reality is really planned by God. Verses 4 through 13. Let's go ahead and read those. It says, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, said, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like one of your maidservants. So, in verse 4, we see that Boaz appears to be a man in good favor with his workers as well as one who is considerate of their welfare. He receives blessings from them, and he gives blessings right back to them. In verse 5, Boaz addresses an unnamed servant. This is interesting, this servant being a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. John 15:26 tells us this. Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit never testifies of himself. He never names himself. He never, uh, he only names, brings forth the name of Christ. He only testifies. Of Christ. So anytime you're going through the scripture, you're going reading the Bible, and you come anywhere across an unknown servant, an unnamed servant, you can probably uh, assume that's a, a type of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, when Abraham sent uh, his servant out to find a daughter for Isaac, uh, the servant went unnamed all the way for many, many chapters, because that's a picture of the Holy Spirit going forth from God to find a bride for Christ. That's another wonderful type or picture uh, in Scripture. Um, in verse 6, the unnamed servant identifies Ruth as being one who has come to Israel through her relationship with Naomi. As the church, our spiritual roots are, of course, deeply planted within our relationship to Judaism. In verse 7, we learn that Ruth has pleaded to the servant, please let me glean, asking for favor. As a foreigner, especially a foreign, woman, a foreign woman, opportunities were greatly restricted to her. Verse 7 also tells us that Ruth was a hard worker, working from morning to night, dedicated to the task at hand. That, too, is an object lesson for us. As a church, we need to be dedicated to our task at hand. And what is our task that we have? It's the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission, isn't it? The task that Jesus has given to all of us to perform. 
Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us this. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. How do we all get involved in that? Do we all have to go to foreign lands? Do we have to do that? No. You can, you can become greatly involved in that simply by praying. Just pray for the lost. Pray for the missionaries around the world. There are people around the world today, guys, that are living under extreme conditions just to give the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. They need your prayers. They need our prayers every day. You know, if, if you have a prayer list, put missionaries on there. They are, they are really, really desperate for, for our prayers. Uh, you can help by contributing money. You can help by doing a lot of things we do here. We sell burritos and things like that to raise money. You can help in those ministries. We have a craft ministry that we have shows at the end of the year, and a lot of that money goes to the missionary field. So there's a lot of ways of getting involved in the Great Commission right from your own home, right from your own church. You don't have to go to the far ends of the earth but just be willing to help whatever way you can. And prayer is a great way to help. Pray for those missionaries. Do we do that? Do we work on that from morning to night? I know that I fail to do that often. Often that's far from my mind. But we need to do that. We need to pray for those people out there. They're putting it all on the line for Christ. The least we can do is pray for them. In verses 8 and 9, Boaz tells Ruth not to go to any other field to glean, but to stay in his field. He will provide provision and protection. If you want a companion scripture to this, you can just uh, go to Psalm 23 and read that. In verse 10, it tells us that Boaz shows great kindness. The Hebrew word here again is kam, which means grace to a foreigner. It's life-saving grace that he's showing to Ruth just like the life-saving grace that Christ has shown towards us. Chuck Smith wrote a book a, a long time ago. Uh, it was titled, Why Grace Changes Everything. If you've never gotten a chance to read that book, get a copy of it and read it. It's a great book. And grace really does change everything. So Boaz, Boaz does this kindness for Ruth. This is a kindness. The kindness is a word you don't hear used much anymore. You used to hear it. You used to say, oh yeah, look at that guy over there. Look how kind he is. You know, we don't use that word very much anymore. It means someone who is friendly, generous, and considerate. Unfortunately, we live in a, in a world that's not friendly, generous, and considerate for the most part. Pretty harsh out there, actually. But kindness is important. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Psalm 117, verse 2 says, For his, speaking of God, for his merciful kindness is great towards us. Proverbs 31, verse 26 speaks of the law of kindness. Isaiah 54, 8 there God tells us this. He says, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. Jeremiah 31.3 says, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. It's the kindness of God that draws people to him. And Colossians 3.12 tells us to put on kindness as his children, as his representatives, we need to put on kindness. And one of my favorites is Ephesians 2.7. That says this, it says that in the ages to come, he, this is speaking of God the Father, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That tells us right there that God is going to spend eternity showing us the kindness, the grace, the love, and the mercy that he's shown us. He's going to spend eternity doing that. And it's never going to run out. There's always going to be more and more for him to show us. Kindness is mentioned in many other scriptures as well. 
But again, there certainly it does not appear to be much kindness in the world today. Verse 11 tells us why Boaz is showing this favor to Ruth. As a repayment of Ruth's kindness and loyalty to Naomi. Who again, remember, is a picture of Israel. God will also repay us for our kindness and our loyalty to Israel. Evangelical Christians are are probably the most loyal people to Israel, outside of Israel. And uh, there's a real bond between evangelicals and and the Jews. Uh, Genesis 12, 2, God said this. Speaking to Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, that's speaking of Christ through his line. Unfortunately, those blessings appear to be in jeopardy under our present administration in Washington. We have grown farther away from Israel than we have ever been since Israel became a nation. And I think we're going to pay for that uh, shortly. I think we're paying for it now in a lot of the things that are going on in the world. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 speaks of Ruth coming under the wings of God. Here you can't help but go to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 verses 1 through 4 says this. It says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. What a beautiful place. What a wonderful place to dwell. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, that's where we're dwelling tonight. We're dwelling under his wings, under his feathers, under his protection. There's nothing that's going to happen in this world that can touch us as followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, they can imprison us and they can kill us, but they can't touch us. Our, our eternity is set. Our eternity is secure. And uh, nothing will change our, our eternity. We are safe and protected and under the wings of Jesus Christ. And again, what a wonderful place to be. To live. Dwell there. If you don't dwell under the wings of God, learn how to dwell under the wings of God. Don't worry. Don't be concerned. Don't fret. Remember, you're under the wings of God. He's got it all covered. Yeah, we may go through some tough times. We may go through some perilous times. We may die, but we're still covered by those wings, and nothing's going to change that. Verses 14 through 17. says, Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Verse 14 is really intriguing to me. Boaz tells Ruth, he says, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Can you guess what vinegar was made of in that culture? Sour grapes. It was sour wine. So here we have Boaz feeding Ruth bread and wine. Boaz is serving Ruth communion. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't God's word awesome? He just hides this stuff in there for us to find. It is not only important to read God's word, it is equally important to learn how to read God's word. Isaiah uh, chapter 28, verse 9 and 10 tells us this. It says, Whom will he teach knowledge? 
And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. He means you have to just keep at it. If you're just if you're casual about it, you're not you're not going to learn. You're not going to understand. You're not going to get the knowledge you need. Proverbs four five says, "Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth." And Proverbs four seven says, "Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all thy getting, get understanding." God gave us this book to read and understand, and there's no reason we can't. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper to lead us into all truth. Pray before you read. Pray that the Lord will lead you into truth, and he will. We need to read God's word with understanding. And when we dig deep while reading God's word and watch for those golden gems that are hidden in it, we will be richly rewarded with both knowledge and understanding. In verses 15 and 16, Boaz instructs his young men to make sure that there is plenty for Ruth to glean, even instructing them to purposely let grain fall from the bundles that they gather, while also letting her gather from the fields which haven't even been harvested yet. This is a wonderful picture of God's generosity towards and provision for those who he takes under his wings. God is very, very generous. Boaz also exhibited the highest form of charity by giving in secret so as not to shame the recipient. Again, that's a lesson for our governments today to learn. Verse 17 informs us that Ruth gleaned about half a bushel. That is more than would be expected for a day's work, but Boaz purposely provided for her. We'll finish with verses 18 through 23. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. She's talking there about the corn. Remember it says in verse 14, she held some corn back when she was eating lunch. She held it back for Naomi. She's also very generous. She was thinking of Naomi, not just of herself. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So in verses 18 through 23, we see Ruth return to Naomi uh, with this plenteous bounty that she gleaned during the day. When Naomi sees how much there is, she knows that something special had taken place. When Naomi asks Ruth where she gleaned, Ruth tells Naomi about Boaz, who is uh, who we already know is a close relative of Naomi's. This leads us into chapter 3, where we will see next time, we'll see Ruth asking Boaz to do the duty of kinsman redeemer to her, and she lays down the claim to a Leverite marriage, and we'll study that uh, next time we, we get together in the, in the book of Ruth. Next time we will also look at this strange verse. And we'll look at it's chapter 3, verse 7. That speaks of Ruth going to Boaz as he slept in the night and laying down at his feet. Many misconstrue this verse as representing something sexual taking place between them. And we will see when we get there that uh, that could not be any farther from the truth. But in closing chapter 2, I want to compare verse 20 of chapter 2 with verse 20 of chapter 1, because I think it's an interesting comparison. 
In chapter 1, when Naomi returns from Moab, she tells the people who recognize her, Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, she says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Here in chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi says to Ruth, she says, blessed be the be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. In the end, God had not abandoned Ruth and Naomi. He provided for them. After utter despair, Naomi now places hope in God. I believe that will be true of Israel also one day. Since the crucifixion, God has seemingly dealt bitterly with Israel. They crucified their Messiah. They crucified his son. And when they did that, they brought down a curse upon their own heads. When Pilate, knowing Christ to be innocent, washed his hands of the Lord's blood, the Jews responded in this way. This is out of Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. It says, And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on us. What a terrible verse that is. They called down a terrible curse upon themselves. And it has been for 2,000 plus years, culminating in the Holocaust of World War II, after which the Jews in mass turned their backs on God. That's why Jew, Israel today is mostly a secular nation. Sure, there's, there's some Jews over there. There's some um, uh, Hasidic Jews and uh, there are some Orthodox Jews, but if you look at the average Israeli, they'll tell you that they're either agnostic or atheist and live secular lives. They, they, they just said, they, they just couldn't believe that God would let this happen to them. The Holocaust was their chapter 1, verse 20 moment. They said, God has dealt bitterly with me. And this will continue until the event occurs as prophesied of in the book of Hosea. And that's Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. When the Jews, suffering persecution and facing annihilation in the tribulation, turn their hearts around and petition Christ the Messiah to come back and save them. Hosea 5:15 says this. says, I will return again to my place. That's the Lord speaking. I will return again to my place. Till they, the Jews, acknowledge their offense. What was their offense? They rejected them the first time he came. Till they acknowledge their offense, then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. We know by that that at the time of the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews are dead. The last third, over in Basra, probably most of them, will petition Christ to come back and save them. And he will, three days later. He'll do that, and he'll save them to the uttermost when he does it. Hebrews 7.25 says this. This is therefore, speaking of Christ, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then Psalm 59 will be fulfilled when that happens. And I'll read from Psalm 59. It says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. This is talking about the tribulation, the day of the Lord. At evening they return. They growl like a dog. They go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who's, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. That comes right from Psalm 2, verse 4. I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. 
For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. The Jews will finally accept their Messiah. This will be the Jews, Ruth, chapter 2, verse 20 moment. And then they too will declare to the world, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. They will see the mercy of God come upon them once again. As for us, we as believers have already had our chapter 2, verse 20 moment, haven't we? It happened when we asked Jesus Christ into our lives to be our Lord and Savior. So we're already set. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray? That's Ruth chapter 2. Book of Ruth is a beautiful, beautiful little book. And it just tells of the relationship between Christ and his church. So if you get a chance, read through it. It's only a a few chapters, four chapters, I think. And uh, see what you can glean out of it for yourself. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this time to come and worship you through praise and song and prayer and fellowship and through the study of your word. We thank you for the wonderful and marvelous truth that you have hidden within your word, truth that you so graciously revealed to us. Be with each one of us now as we depart from this place and watch over and protect each of us until we once again come together to worship you, the one true God of all creation. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Amen. A few people down here to, to pray.